Hey there guys, welcome to the Holy Shed. We may not be big, but we're small. And that's part of what I want to talk about today actually, that you don't have to be big and strong and powerful to make a difference in the world. I think probably it's more important to be passionate and committed. And there are lots of passionate and deeply committed people who are making a difference in our world every single day. Let me show you an icon which is by a member of my former congregation in North London, an artist called Gerard Mickelsons. And it was during the pandemic that Gerard wanted to venerate small, mostly anonymous people who were making a massive difference in that horribly traumatic time. And actually, people who still are making a difference every single day nurses, doctors and carers of all sorts in the NHS. Uh, the icon was dedicated by Gerard in honour of the health service saints that have lost their lives caring for strangers. I think it's just lovely and um, yeah, moves me. Also, I wanted to make special mention this week of Bruce Kent, Another true saint who passed away this week, age 92, I think he was. Uh, Bruce was a Catholic priest who served the church magnificently for many years. But ultimately, he felt obliged to give up formal priesthood to pursue his other great passion, which was a passion for a peaceful world. For many years, he was General Secretary of CND, the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, and worked tirelessly to promote peace in so many ways in his life. Bruce was a man he was a man of grace as well as truth. I remember hearing him address a huge crowd at Greenbelt one year, talking about disarmament and reconciliation and, and all these wonderful themes. Toward the end of his talk, he allowed an enthusiastic young American who had his hand up to speak and uh, the man, it was very quickly clear, opposed really just about everything that Bruce was saying. And he came back with something like, you know, the trouble with you people is you don't realise that it's the Americans who are looking after the world and guns and nuclear weapons are necessary to keep the world safe. Well, as he spoke, he was really talking to the wrong audience. As he spoke, the vociferous Greenbelt crowd booed and hissed him. But what was so wonderful was the way that Bruce would have none of it. He quietened the crowd down and he told them to give the man a chance to speak and he let him continue with what he wanted to say. And then, with the most enormous grace and also clarity, and he was a man with enormous clarity of speech, very articulate, and he came back, with, as I say, with a loving, gracious clarity that told the man, uh, that he respected his views, but he thought that they were appallingly wrong. And it was just incredible the way he kind of sliced right through everything the guy had been saying, but he did it uh, with such grace. And regardless of the arguments, I left that day feeling that I had witnessed a Christ figure there at Greenbelt and in Bruce Kent. And this belief was massively enhanced when I had the opportunity a few years later to interview Bruce for a magazine. 
and I went to his flat and saw him and his he then got married and um, such a gracious lovely couple the world needs Bruce Kent's <clears throat> Bruce Kent's and I for one massively mourn his passing and pray that his legacy will be a host of peacemakers in the days that lie ahead because my god we need them so let's light a candle if you've got one handy i invite you to grab it now and light a candle with me let's light a candle for bruce kent and for others that you may be mourning at this time including for me uh, tim another lovely man who was part of my congregation in north london who who died suddenly this week leaving his beloved anna completely bereft and devastated so whether it's bruce or tim or other people that are on your heart i invite you to take a moment of quiet uh, with a little flame of hope And here's a prayer. <clears throat> In a world of discord and despair, may we be channels of peace, fountains of compassion, beacons of hope, and servants of goodness in the moments of each day. Amen. <clears throat> Okay, well, you know, the book of Revelation that we've been looking at, at least, you know, we had a break last week, but before that we'd have, we had a couple of weeks looking at the book of Revelation. It belongs to a genre of writing called apocalyptic. And in fact, uh, the book of Revelation is in some Bibles actually called the apocalypse. And it's important to say that the bizarre imagery and symbolism in Revelation is not randomly created by the writer John of Patmos or even entirely original. It actually owes much to earlier apocalyptic writings, the books of Daniel, Ezekiel and Zechariah in the Hebrew Bible. And you may rec recall me quoting uh, on one of the occasions Harold Bloom, the Jewish literary critic, describing Revelation as basically a jigsaw puzzle in which most of the pieces originate in those earlier Jewish writings. You know, so it's hugely derivative uh, in terms of all the, the images and ideas, uh, but obviously put together in a, in a new and fresh way by John. As we've seen, a chief aim of apocalyptic literature is to overcome a sense of contradiction, a contradiction between what is and what ought to be, or what we sense ought to be. So it's a theological as well as a practical problem. It's a bit like, here we are, faithful worshippers of the one true God, defeated and overrun by worshippers of false gods. How on earth can that be right? Now that's basically what uh, the people that were, were you know, being addressed in the Hebrew scriptures were going through. But it's also what uh, Christians and Jews at the end of the first century going through that John addressed in the book of Revelation. So apocalyptic is basically that address to try to resolve this problem 
this cognitive dissonance, if you like, between the reality that is and the reality that we feel ought to be. Addressing uh, this dilemma, this contradiction, apocalyptic visions and prophecy basically place that contradiction squarely into the context of a perceived greater reality. So it's like, yes, this may be happening right now down here, but there's a cosmic battle going on in which a victorious outcome is assured. What ought to be, will be. And an essential feature of this kind of apocalyptic scenario is a sharp dualism between the two sides. You know, there are no grey areas in apocalyptic scenarios. You know, everyone is on one side or the other. You're with God or with the devil, which is how many Christians tend to understand things, isn't it? You know, you're one of us or one of them. You're saved or unsaved. You're bound for heaven or you're bound for hell. And I guess this is part of what makes a shedster a shedster. Because I guess most of you gathered in here today are people like me who don't anymore identify with that kind of simplistic black and white categorization. But the question is, what about, you know, all the Satan stuff in Revelation and elsewhere in the Bible and in Christian tradition? Do we even believe in the devil, you know? What about demons? Uh, are there forces of evil at work in the world? And if so, what does that mean? How can we think about these things once we're now in the shed? <laughs> in recent decades, uh, the charismatic movement, of which I was once a part, has become engulfed in what I would call the paranoid universe. You know, an understanding of the world as a theatre of spiritual warfare where there are demonic forces kind of lurking everywhere, basically. And I mean, an extreme and dramatic example of this was uh, <laughs> was watching Paula White. Do you know Paula White? Televangelist, uh, megachurch pastor, and the spiritual advisor to Donald Trump. She's been attributed as leading Donald Trump to Christ. Um, but there was this sort of piece of uh, TV footage in which she was getting herself into a right old lather uh, invoking angelic reinforcements from other parts of the world, from Africa and South America and places, to come together to America and fight the forces of evil who were robbing Donald Trump of his election victory. Hmm. So, <laughs> moving on, uh, let, me spell, let me spell it out from my perspective. I don't believe in the devil or Satan or demons as ontological realities, that is, as beings kind of out there. Uh, I mean, I've seen and heard enough superstitious bunkum about all of that to last me, well, through most of eternity, I would think. However, and this is very important, however, this does not mean that I question the existence of evil, or indeed of evil forces at work in our world, which in its ham-fisted medieval fashion, the semantics of Satan and demons attempts, I think, to point towards. In other words, uh, I do believe that there is something real about evil in the world, something which is greater than the sum of its parts, if you like. 
So to explain what I mean, let me first remind you about stuff that we've looked at before here in the shed, about the difference between what I call day language and night language. So day language, you remember, is the language of objective, matter-of-fact reality, uh, stuff that you can test and prove and be pretty certain about. You know, it's the, it's, it's the normal stuff of, of the world of science and the scientific outlook. Night language, on the other hand, also attempts to speak of reality and truth, but it does so through metaphors, through images, through poetry, through myth, and all those sort of more uh, imaginative kind of forms of perception. As I see it, biblical speech and imagery of Satan, demonic powers, and all that spiritual warfare stuff is basically night language which therefore absolutely must not be taken literally or translated into factual day language. Can't do that, it's, you know, not least because it basically comes out as plain silly in a scientific age such as we live in now. And that's why I think so many of us have walked away from notions of demons and Satan. You know, it, it feels like comic book fiction, entertaining, if you like that sort of thing, but all really quite implausible. And I think that's part of why many people have actually walked away from the church and faith altogether because of that kind of, you know, simple, simplistic sort of uh, understanding of things that are, as I say, essentially in the realm of night language, but they're often dragged into the realm of day language where, as I say, they just look daft. All of that said, does the language of Satan and all that, does it point to something which is in any way real in the world? And you know what? I think it does, actually. I mean, let's take a currently deeply disturbing example. Vladimir Putin's invasion and devastation of the Ukraine, for me, is manifestly evil. I mean, I don't find it helpful to label Putin as the Antichrist or <laughs> the Beast of Revelation, but I do believe there is more to his regime than just a vile, egomaniac narcissist with a bunch of complicit followers supporting him. There's something beneath the surface of all of this which is more than the sum of its parts. I think there's a kind of malevolent spirituality to Putin's regime, an energising force or power which is deeply toxic. And it's not just Putin and other horrible politicians and tyrants. I'm talking also about institutions, organisations and social movements. I'm talking about social trends where hateful and insane attitudes like misogyny, racism, homophobia and the like, have a powerful viral quality uh, to infect and engulf people in a way that goes way beyond the influence of any particular person or group that holds those views. So the question is, if I've rejected notions of an actual devil or de demonic beings out there, as I've said I do, how do I make sense of these things? How do I make sense of these sort of manifestations and forces of, of evil in our world? What is my theology 
of evil forces and corrupting powers in the world. Well, as you know, I'm deeply motivated by uh, helping to shift faith and theology in directions that make sense to people in the 21st century. You know, I think religion has massively lost uh, its footage in the world because it's often continued to speak in the language of an era that's long gone. And as I say, you know, often that night language is being interpreted as day language and, and that just makes no sense at all to 21st century people. Walter Wink uh, was a New Testament scholar. He's sadly not with us anymore. I wish he was. Uh, but Walter Wink was a New Testament scholar who helped me enormously in this task of redirecting faith and theology into uh, a 21st century understanding. And his magnus opus is a trilogy of books that explore the language of power and powers in the New Testament. I can show you them here. I haven't got the set that are all the same, but here you go. Naming the powers, unmasking the powers, the invisible forces that determine human existence, and finally, engaging the powers. Uh, that'll take you a while to get through. <laughs> Did me. Um, and, and actually, if the trilogy is a bit too much for you, but you'd like to find an abbreviated version. Fortunately, there is one actually in this book, which is much more sort of manageable, called The Powers That Be Theology for a New Millennium. So th this is basically a distillation of, of much of what he says in his trilogy. Um, he was also a Jungian, you know, uh, a follower of Carl Jung. He had a deep sort of interest in psychology and sociology and he was someone who kind of synthesized theology with these other areas of study which is something I you know I'm personally committed to and enjoy a great deal. So drawing on the work of Carl Jung Walter Wink argues that every physical or visible manifestation of power okay so we're talking about like political commercial social, cultural, religious, any visible manifestation of power. So the Church of England would be such a thing, you know. Uh, the government of the day would be such a thing. Um, multinationals and much smaller business, you know, all these sort of, every uh, physical, visible manifestation of power, Walter Wink says, has also got an inner dimension to it, an inner aspect as well as its outer. You know, there's a visible and an invisible dimension. And, um, you know, we sometimes speak of of businesses or schools or, you know, political parties or churches having a kind of collective personality or culture. I definitely, you know, could see that in St. Luke's where I was the vicar for 19 years. And I've no doubt that I contributed to that, but it was there already. Um and it's something that isn't easy necessarily to reduce down to one set of words, to put it into words. Uh, but it's like a tradition, maybe mostly unspoken, and it's in all these different organisations that, you know, legitimises, perpetuates and regulates the way things are within that institution. Uh, now, this may be good or it could be bad or often some of both, 
you know. So you could look at most organisations and see this, you know, in some of them there's an absolutely toxic culture, you know. A very dear friend of mine recently had to change his job because he just lived for far too long in a climate of toxicness that was so undermining. And, um, you know, that can be present in all kinds of institutions and organisations. Uh, and there may be others where you sense there's, there's just a spirit of goodness, you know, that, that helps everyone to be good, you know, to behave in better ways, to find, you know, better um, ways to, to, to be and do what they're all about. Uh, but whether they're good or bad, uh, these kind of collective cultures uh, are often very, very powerful uh, and newcomers very quickly find that they're either sucked into that in a good way or a bad way or else they just feel they don't fit here and and they'll go somewhere else. Now, Wink, Walter Wink sees this inner aspect as the spirituality of that institution or organisation, as a kind of collective spirituality. And basically, he argues that the principalities and powers spoken of in Paul's letters in the New Testament, are those principalities and powers are a composite of both the inner and the outer aspects of any given manifestation of power. So when you read about principalities and powers, Walter Wink is saying that's actually a way of encompassing both because actually ancient people didn't see a difference between the two. We tend to see the outer visible manifestation, but we often overlook its invisible withinness, you know, its spiritual driving force, its essence. And yet that is every bit as real and as important as the outer aspect. So Walter Wink argues that the powers that be are created by God, whether we're talking about government or other institutions of society these things are basically created by god and and he says have a divine vocation to serve god's purpose in spreading and upholding goodness peace justice and compassion in the world but they don't always do this you know they become corrupted in some way distorted maybe even toxic you know or somewhere along that spectrum uh, and then Instead of, you know, serving people, they end up oppressing and maybe even, you know, tyrannizing people uh, instead of being that source of goodness that God would want them to be. So the powers are in themselves neither good nor bad, evil, but they can become vehicles of goodness or vehicles of evil. It's when a particular manifestation of power in business, government, church or whatever, it's when a particular manifestation of power becomes idolatrous, you know, by placing itself above God's purposes for the good of the whole, that its inner energy or motivating spirit becomes malevolent or, to use old money language, demonic. So when people speak for example, of a police force. It's been said a lot about the Met in London, hasn't it? But other places too. When when people speak of a police force as being institutionally racist, that doesn't mean, of course, that every officer is racist. It means there's a prevailing spirit 
which often coerces even non-racist officers into complicity by their silence. I, I do believe there is a malevolent spirituality of racism in some police forces. Um, I think that some church organizations, organizations have been and still are influenced by a spirituality of misogyny or homophobia. Uh, this doesn't mean that all church officials or all church members are misogynist or homophobic or all police officers racist or all Russian soldiers Putinites. But it does mean that the institutions or regimes become vehicles for spiritual coercive forces that resist God's purpose for a compassionate, inclusive, just and fair world full of goodness. Um, but here's the vital bit in Walter Wink's approach. He says, and I'm quoting here, none of these spiritual realities has an existence independent of its material counterpart. Let me say that again. None of these spiritual realities has an existence independent of its material counterpart. So both come into existence together, both cease to exist together. So, you know, spiritual warfare in this context, therefore, is part and parcel of a program of resisting the outward manifestations of corrupt or distorted expressions of power. So this takes us away from the realm of kind of, you know, spirits and things floating round in the air doing their demonic things and us kind of firing prayer arrows at them. This is saying that actually we're not talking about ontological beings. We're talking about something that is created within a corrupt situation which then becomes its energy, its spirituality, its driving force. So, from Wink's perspective, the demons are real, you know, even if not actual beings. There's something really there which plays havoc with humanity. I mean, racism and misogyny and homophobia, just as examples, cause massive pain and suffering and injustice in all kinds of organizations and situa situations but the demons are not kind of up there you know they're over there um, in the socio-spiritual structures that make up this one and only real world from this perspective satan then is the world encompassing spirit of resistance to the spread and the flourishing of god's kingdom of goodness uh, not a person, you know, not a creature or being, but rather a powerful force facilitated by systems and structures of injustice, violence and hatred. The good news is the powers can be redeemed, transformed to serve the purpose of God's kingdom. Nothing is outside the redemptive care and transforming love of God. And so, you know, we can love our nation, love our church or college, uh, the business that we patronise, the police forces where many good people serve. Uh, we can even support governments in their higher aspirations. But none of this should be done blindly, but rather critically, you know, recalling them 
uh, all these different institutions to their own highest self-professed ideals and identities. You know, we can challenge the institutions to live up to the vocations which are theirs by virtue of our common humanity and what, is, and what it truly means to be human. We can oppose their actions or policies whilst accepting and honouring their necessity. So that's the complexity of living in a world uh, where often, you know, there are, there are kind of conflicting spirits within a situation or within an organisation or whatever. And this, I think, is the calling of the church, actually the calling of every decent human being, to uncover the powers, uh, you know, to bring often hidden motivations and attitudes into the light to work in every way, beginning with ourselves, uh, to call our world back to its true heart and soul. And that, dear friends, is what I would call real spiritual warfare. So I don't know how much sense that makes to you. I hope that, you know, I've just sort of opened up a different realm for you to think about and explore. Um, I'm happy to pursue any part of that that you may want to ask me questions about so do please you know message me any questions that you have and we can look a bit further but I've I've found this inner and outer dimension to be a very helpful way of understanding how uh, you know evil can work in our world at a spiritual level without having to go for the comic book sort of uh, actual entities of you know, a devil with kind of, you know, horns and a, and a forked, uh, you know, tail and all that kind of stuff, or demons floating round in the air. So here's a prayer that I will come to. This is a lovely picture um, which portrays uh, one of Jesus' table fellowship gatherings where you know, he gathered in the people who were structurally rejected, who were demonized in their society. And this was the basis of the community that Jesus created. So let's pray. May I never become indifferent toward a world where people are trapped in debt or overwhelmed by poverty or homelessness. May I never be silently complicit in a world where people are judged by background, economic status, by the colour of their skin, by gender, sexuality or ability. May I never sit by while Mother Nature is depleted and undermined, while this earth, our home, suffers under climate change or while precious creatures and species daily become extinct. God grant me holy rage at injustice and fervent determination to work tirelessly for a kinder, fairer world where all can thrive and flourish. Amen. Okay, well, it's time for the Holy Sacrament of the Holy Shed, which is, of course, a toast. So if you've got a drink handy, I'd invite you to join me now in making a toast. Ooh. 
It's quite simply really a toast. A toast to a future for our world where difference is celebrated and embraced, not vilified. A toast to life, Laheim. So, dear friends, if you like what we're doing here in the Holy Shed and you want to support us, you can do so by buying us a coffee or indeed a whiskey or whatever uh, by going to the coffee site. The link is on your screen now and it's always at the top of the posts on the Holy Shed Facebook page. And our heartfelt thanks go to all those of you who stand with us and support us in this way and lots of other ways too. So here's a blessing. The blessing of God, the eternal goodwill of God, the shalom and salam of God, the wildness and warmth of God be among us and between us now and always. Amen. So that's it, guys. I'm going to finish with a, a music, piece of music in a moment. It's a song called What About Now? Um, it's been around for a few years now. Uh, and that's reflected in the video but it's by a band called Dowtry and I really like it and it kind of reflects I suppose uh, you know something of what I've been talking about tonight the need for us to engage with the world uh, at a practical level um, and to be the change that we want to see in the world and through that to combat those coercive forces that uh, often drag the world in the wrong direction so thanks for being with me i hope you've enjoyed it and we'll carry on with more next week do do send in any questions that you have about it because i'd be glad to try and pick up on those uh meanwhile go out there into the world and be kind be kind to yourself first of all be kind to people around about you stay human and i'll see you very soon enjoy this <laughs>